Tonight, uh, I want to speak about um, an extension of the classes on the uh, five aggregates. Uh, But really, this talk is an extension on virtually every series that I've done. Uh, And I hope that we don't think of these series as being uh, individually, um, individual uh, series in themselves. They all um, lace together uh, in, in a very important fashion. Um, really, you have to look at the whole of Buddhism before you understand it. You can't really pick it apart. You can't uh, take facets of it and pull it out from the whole and expect those facets to work independent of the whole. And so uh, as we uh, go through talks um, like this, I hope that you can then reach back uh, in memory uh, or in uh, renewal by just re- reviewing uh, some of the talks we've had previously and pull forth that information and see how it, the, the next series or the, uh, the next talk extends that on and fulfills um, uh, a wholeness and completion in your understanding. And so tonight I want to talk about self, uh, self-knowledge, self-knowledge. And if you, um, if I can, just to go back uh, to that five aggregate series, and um, and just uh, um, review in a moment that those five talks were essentially about uh, how the mind and body puts itself forth in representation of a of a person, of a sense of, of an entity, of a sense of I, me, and mine, and that what we were really seeing when we looked at those five aggregates was a reflection back that it wasn't out there that the world was, as the Buddha said, but was um, created within this fathom-long body and that those five aggregates begin to show how perception and feeling and consciousness in the body, etc., are internal responses, internal images within oneself. And from those internal, internal images, we then project out what we see and, uh, from those internal, internal images and then react to our own painting, you might say, our own world view. Uh, and so when we talk about self-knowledge, which is really at the crux of the meditation process, uh, we're really talking about an extension of that inward mirroring to see what it is that's going on in here and how I'm creating my problems, creating my reactions, creating my difficulties, and how I very quickly want to disown those reactive responses and pin the blame externally. But when we see the process and how that blame is created, we can no longer do that. We have to own the sense of self-responsibility. Now, um, it, tonight, uh, was, as we were sitting here together, those... 40 minutes, what were you doing? This is a <laughs> not a question of response, but uh, what, were, what, were, what, were we, what were you doing? What do you do when you sit, you see? I think that's a very legitimate question. Um, oftentimes we try to figure out the mess of our day, right? And uh, bring some... Um, mulling over responses to uh, perhaps 
rough areas of the day. Or, um, or maybe we uh, think of meditation in terms of um, it's good for my health and blood pressure. Stress reduction. Or we can think of it as a, a way to work with chronic pain or the pain of aging. Or as a tool uh, that makes our life a little easier. And that if I I quickly see the difference when I sit and don't sit into how uh, many arguments and conflicts I get in in the course of the day and the struggles that incur. And uh, many of us use meditation as a tool to try to kind of um, improve the landscape of our life. Fair enough, it works that way. But if that if the meditation, if that's the ends of the meditation, uh, it's very limiting. It will do what you seek from it. It will do that. It will make you uh, kinder, and more receptive, quieter, calmer, more tranquil. Uh, it will do those things. But if that is the end that we seek, if that is what we, when we sit down, what our goal is for our meditation, then our meditation is, um, is really, um, uh, really being neglected. The importance of what meditation really is, is being neglected. There's a story uh, in the Buddha's time. Uh, he was walking along with a few of his monks and uh, there was a, another tradition uh, that was a contemporary of his uh, called the Jain tradition. It's still in India. And the Jains were a Hindu sect. Uh, Mahavira was the, uh, was the leader of that sect. And uh, he and the Buddha would get into these um, discourses uh, from time to time. They're interesting to read. But one time, so he was walking along with a group of his disciples and uh, Jane was standing in the sun, uh, just uh, staring at the the sun. And the Buddha stopped and said, uh, Sir, what what are you doing? And he says, Well, I'm wearing off my karma. And the Buddha says, Well, uh, how much have you worn off? And the Jane uh, scratches his head and says, Well, I don't know. And the Buddha says, Well, how much more do you have to wear off? And the Jane said, uh, well, I, I don't really know. And the Buddha said, well, how will you know when it's worn off? And the Jane scratches his head and says, I don't know. And the Buddha looked at his monks and said, this is truly silly practice, monks. Now, if we sit <clears throat> with the intentionality of improving ourselves, we stand and sit like that, Jane. It's not good enough. It's silly practice. Because the heart and aim of this meditation is vast. And we're cashing our chips in for, for, for an apple in the garden. Where this 
meditation is pointing, where the journey of the meditation rests is in self-understanding. There's another story in the Buddhist time about two pickpockets who go into the crowds of the people who were listening to the Buddha. And one of the pickpockets does what he's there uh, to do, which is to pick the pockets. The other uh, pickpocket happened to listen to the Buddha's sermon and became enlightened and gave up his pickpocketing activity. And when we're just focused on the meditation in terms of our own pursuit, in terms of our own needs, when we're just after uh, the very limited responses of self-improvement, then we really aren't listening to the Buddhist sermon. For he said, unequivocally, this I teach is for self-understanding, and that is the path to freedom. This what I teach. This what I teach. You see, it's a very... This is not... uh, In some ways, I'm, I'm offering this talk also for those who have finished the beginning series. Because during the beginning series... I ask routinely during the first class, what are you all here for? And they give me the list of responses that anyone would give that had some dissatisfaction in their life and were seeking greater satisfaction. But self-knowledge is a, a higher road, may I say. It's a greater and more powerful journey. And Uh, So I want to bring us into this using our meditation in the rightful way. It doesn't mean that those uh, cherished qualities uh, of self-improvement don't occur. But when we focus in on them as being the means and ends of our meditation, then the freedom doesn't occur. We just get that. When we focus in on the freedom, then the side benefits is the self-improvement. That occurs without our need. Uh, that occurs uh, 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 secondarily without our need to focus upon it. So, what is this self knowledge? Knowledge about oneself. When we sit down and we bring some presence some awareness to our inward process. We begin to understand what this inward process is. I say over and over again that this practice is not breath meditation. Breath meditation will, in fact, allow you to calm your mind and send you into states of consciousness and qualities that are very rare in your usual and normal and active life. And those can be extremely alluring and capturing, captivating. But they are not the intention. The intention of the meditation is to bring the awareness to the breath in order to steady the attention sufficiently 
so that the light of our awareness can then look out and shine it upon different aspects of mind for self-knowledge. We have to see ourselves in order to understand ourselves. In order, Now, when I say self-knowledge, it sounds like a noun. It's really a verb. Self-knowledge is not a writing of one's inward journal and then reflecting on that journal as some reposit of knowledge. It's an active, ongoing experience of oneself, a learning experience, that when we sufficiently hold ourselves uh, with attention inwardly, that's an ongoing, active, continuous experience. There are no dead spots. How about right now? Is there an inward awareness, a presence? Do you know that you sit? Do you know what you're feeling as you sit? Do you know what the mind is doing in terms of its thinking? Is the awareness of any judgment or opinions associated with what you're hearing? You see, it's not confined to to just the sitting. It's an extension out of virtually everything we do all day long. Let us be clear that the meditation does not end with the 45 minute or whatever amount we do on the pillow each day. This is an engaged spirituality, engaged with oneself. In the Gospel of St. Thomas, even Christ said, if you do not know what's inside of you, what's inside of you will destroy you. If you know what's inside of you, what's inside of you will lead you to freedom. To God, in his words. To the Father. And you know, if you pursue the meditation in terms of a spiritual journey, this is the only way your heart will truly be satisfied. It will not be satisfied in terms of setting minor goals. Your life will be more more improved, no question. And you will get some sense of accomplishment from your meditation but it will not satisfy your spiritual yearning. We have to drink. Drink what we, drink the forbidden fruit because the one thing that the mind does not want, I guarantee you, is self-understanding. It doesn't want that. Its job is to keep your eyes externalized, out of itself, In fact, if you just followed your normal reactions and did the opposite, you would be well on to your own spiritual journey. (laughs) Instead of grasping and constricting, you'd open and allow. If you think of self-knowledge as a receptivity, as a receiving, as a posture of allowing things to come in, 
then you can see how self-knowledge can be equated to just learning, receiving. Then, in that sense of passivity, and that's a, I know that's a very touchy word for many of you, because you have this fear of being, becoming lethargic, and not, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the passivity of non-doing, the passivity of not creating yourself again and again through your angst, through your reactivity, through your constriction and uh, reactive mind, but rather the willingness to receive yourself in the middle of action, in the middle of interaction, and to learn from each of those relationships. Because it's impossible for the mind not to be in relationship. And it's through that understanding of the nature of that relationship that our spiritual path unfolds. How we relate to ourselves. How we relate to the external world or what seems to be the external world. And what is the basis of that learning but mindfulness? I recently was with somebody and um, they said... uh, uh, they have been coming uh, to Sims for a number of years. And they said, I said, well, what, what, what's your practice? And they said, well, I'm not real sure. I've give, I gave up mindfulness some time ago. I said, why would, you, why would you give up mindfulness? He says, well, that's what I did during the beginning series. And I said, uh, when you learn to read and write in the elementary school. Did you give it up when you went into junior high? Hasn't reading and writing been fundamental to everything you've done since elementary school? That too is the way of mindfulness. Mindfulness sets the stage for awareness to have a point of entry. I uh, was at a retreat uh, not too long ago of... um, of a different tradition. It was a yoga retreat. And uh, I was just walking through, you know, uh, the day, uh, just staying with myself. And I could see that the participants, for the most part, had no basis to steady their attention, had no way to enter their body, to access self-knowledge. And it showed me, it gave me a great deal of appreciation for the many long years of arduous mindful training that I have sustained because it's automatic now. I sit down, there it is. There's the point of entry. It's not the end. It's the beginning. We have to have a point of entry. We have to, the attention has to touch something in order for us to begin to see, for it to hold steady enough so that we can look and to understand what it is that's happening. If the mind is in constant movement, in constant reaction, in constant turbulence, worrying about this or that, externalizing and jumbled thinking, there's no, there's no sense of settledness. There's no point. There's no plumb line. So don't um, release yourself 
from the practice of mindfulness because you thought it was taught at the beginning series and is no longer needed. Allow it to begin to enter your body and move as it moves. Once it's inside, now we can look around. Now we can know. Now we have a a steady enough posture that we can know what's happening to us, what we're feeling, what reactions we might might be occurring, what we're bringing to the situation in terms of our opinions, in terms of our judgment, in terms of our externalizing and uh, reactivity. And we can examine that. We can release ourselves from that. But we can't as long as the flashlight is in such turbulent motion that it has no way to settle and to steady itself. So there's one purpose and one purpose only to what we do here. One spiritual purpose. There may be a lot of humanism, psychological reasons why you sit, but one spiritual purpose and that's the purpose of self-knowledge. The question is, are you the object of your awareness or are you driving the agenda of your awareness? Are you using your awareness as a means to achieving a goal that you would like? Or are you, the sense of you, and all of the reactivity of your response within you, the object of your awareness? That's the difference between self-knowledge and self-improvement. Then, when we have that right orientation with the meditation, then nothing, nothing becomes undermined, can undermine that meditation practice or our spiritual journey. Because suppose, for instance, we got discouraged because we were having a difficult time with our meditation. Instead of taking that discouragement as a point of fact and then moving discouragingly through the world trying to find encouragement you see that how that's self-improvement rather we would hold the discouragement as the object of our attention oh I can feel that that's how we break the self apart not by adding another dimension to it or trying to get over what's occurring but by looking at it in close approximation, in close representation, seeing it for what it is and letting it dissolve in front of our eyes as just a, um, an outward cloak, as a cloaking. Not as something that I need to get over, not as something that needs, nothing, the, something that needs to be fixed, but as a momentary obscuration that convinces me that I'm discouraged. It's a trick of the mind. And that's why the mind wants to keep us cloaked. It wants to stay externalized, convincing each of us that we are a discouraged person. Rather than to hold the discouragement on our lap, not behind us unconsciously, but bring it consciously on our lap. Okay, I can look at this. I'm going to look at this thing. Now there is virtually nothing in our life 
Nothing. Because awareness, mindfulness, is more fundamental than the cloaking response of the mind. Therefore, the mind can see the cloaking. The cloaking can't see the awareness. So we have to first be conscious of what the mind is bringing forth. Discouragement. Okay. Discouragement. And so then the heart can feel the fresh air of the real source. When it holds itself as being a discouraging person, the shutters are closed. The fresh air of the source, the fresh air of stillness, it can't reach us. But when we're aware of the discouragement, then we've opened the shutters and the wind can blow. And we can feel the, feel the heart unleashed, released from the confines of a description. Within a description, there's no movement. But how will we ever know that a description is occurring unless we're self-aware? How will we ever open the shutters if we just assume the response that the mind is taking. It is in assuming nothing. It is the willingness to go anywhere that keeps the source accessible. You can't, I can't tell you how many times on retreat I hear people say, I can't wait till this is over. Because what they really mean, I can't wait till I can stop looking at myself. I can't wait till I can, until I no longer have to be self-aware, have self-knowledge. I remember in my first meditation retreat in the mid-70s, I was doing a three-week, three-ten-day meditation uh, retreat. First one, sitting down, and there was no walking in this thing. It was uh, like the Goenka style. And uh, my legs were just hurting. And, and uh, in fact, uh, so, so much of my emotional despondency and tension were held in my feet and legs. Then I went to the teacher, and I just said, you know, it's like sandbags. I'm walking around on sandbags. And he said, excellent meditation response. I said, excellent meditation. I feel like amputation. Because to him, it, it was an access. It was a road in. For me, it was an obstacle and a problem. There are no obstacles and problems in your meditation. There are just roads in. The question is, do we have the courage, and that's not too small of a word, to realize that rather than to react from it. That wanting to leave. That wanting to get up off the sitting. When we're sitting and we just find ourselves getting up, why did we get up? Do, are we even aware of that? 
Or do we just get up? Do we know what drives us? What motivates us? And as we go through the day, holding that sense of learning will save you enormous difficulty when you get feedback. Because when you receive feedback from the sense of a self-enclosed entity, everything feels torturous to hear about yourself. Anything that has any judgment or negativity whatsoever feels like a sledgehammer. But when we hold the sense of ourself as being flexible, unfixed, and we're willing to listen to others for those genuine and very important uh, feedback loops, then it's a very different process. You don't take it for granted what they're saying is true. You examine it in yourself because you have the ability to look and to see if it's true for yourself. And therefore, it's not just a rubber stamp of everyone giving you feedback and you feeling more and more burdened and guilty and shameful, but rather, let me look at that. Is that true about me? And then you walk out of there feeling okay because nothing has condensed. And perhaps there is some genuine message there that we need to look at and to self-correct. But it's not a problem. It's okay. All we have to do is bring more attention and awareness to the obscuring problem. Maybe we aren't bringing sufficient sensitivity to that area of our life. It doesn't mean that there's anything wrong. It just is a call for greater scrutiny, for greater awareness not for a fix, not for an amputation. Come look. Come look and see. You know, every once in a while I get letters from irate yogis. (laughs) And I save them. Don't send them. <laughs> but when I get them, I save them. And it's a, sometimes I just, too, it's too much. And it's like you open up the letter and it just comes out at you. Say, so, okay, later. I don't throw them away or I don't throw them out or discard them and say that's all nonsense. I'm, you know, I'm not like it. I look at them. Then later when I have a little more uh, stability, I take them out and I read them. And I just, it just, you know, it just... <sighs> And I said, well, is there, anything, is there something there? Is there something there? I once, uh, in a retreat, I had a woman walk in on me uh, for an interview, and she just yelled. The, the entire, just screamed and yelled. And I, I sat there first, I was like clenching, you know. Like, and I just, you know, it's just kind of, and then something opened in me. I just said, okay, bring it on. Just, just, because I could see that it was, she needed to do that. So she was just, just, and uh, I, so I sat there and, uh, and then she looked at me and she said, uh, you know, I know this isn't about you, she said. 
It sure felt like it. <laughs> so find our way in. You know, when, you, when, you, when you're looking for clues, right? Have you ever played Clue? You know, Professor Green in the kitchen with the rope. You're looking for clues. These are clues. If your heart yearns, you're yearning for the clues. You're yearning for facts. You're yearning for the information that you may not be... That's why we need each other. Because through the two eyes multiplied by the number of people, we see more about each other. And if we orient ourselves to the friendliness of the facts and the friendliness of the clues, then we are inspectors. Then we're always on the chase. We look under every rock, every, around every tree to garner, oh, okay, I see. Oh, all right, great, good, right. But we have to have ourselves in order to do that. In order. Because if we're out of order, calamity. It will, it, the, the information will come in directly into the source of our pain. And since we're not aware of the source of our pain, it will just reinforce the identification with that source of pain and create such an inward havoc that we just we react externally in direct proportion to our internal reactivity and dislike of that pain, that's how we react to the outward source of the information. Ajahn Sumedho, a Western, very, very senior uh, Western monk, uh, says it like this. He says, um, Everything that comes into me, I say, ah, so this is what anger feels like. So this is what sorrow feels like. Oh, yeah. Oh, so this is what they talk about when they talk about sorrow. So this is what they're talking about when they talk about anger. You see? Not, oh, God, oh, oh. Not with the shaky, inward shaky, neurotic knees of self-doubt. But from the examination, fresh learning response. Oh, oh, oh. And the interest, and having interest in that. Staying light, light on our feet. Again, this can only happen, only happen. I um, emphasize that and underline it in red. If your meditation is in alignment was self-knowledge, not self-improvement. Feedback is not going to feed your self-improvement. It's going to destroy the goal you're trying to achieve because you'll create an enormous shadow in its wake in your intentionality towards that goal. But if self-knowledge is what you're wanting and whatever forms that takes, it's the dish of the day, then... Whatever way it comes, as we look at it and see if it, see if it has a resonance inwardly, 
It only can feed. And we feed ourselves through the facts that are presented to us, internally and externally. That's how we grow. We grow in proportion to that. To be able to honestly admit that we were wrong or that we don't know can really only come from a person of self-knowledge or false humility, which is the opposite. I don't know. What do you think of this? I haven't thought about it. Let's go into it together. See, we're constantly refreshing, cleaning the lens. No dust can alight. Let's look at it. Let's look. I don't know. Let's look. Because what we're interested in is the newness of the, of the, of the vision, of the seeing. And every reaction is an indication of an entrenched, identified pain. So we're especially interested in where we react. Not as further condemnation but at, or shame, but as an examination to bring this fixed response, which is, which is reactivity, into an unfixed, unfixed and clear understanding of what it is. A reactive response is our conditioned tendency not to look and to believe the lie that we are telling ourselves and why we're not looking. But if we look directly, directly, now when we're talking, when we're talking tonight, we're, self-knowledge is direct, experiential knowledge, not intellectual knowledge. Please let us be very clear on that. We're not talking about the notebook of the mind keeping a journal of our life. We're talking about the connection of awareness directly to the reactivity, to the experience of reaction, to the experience of emotion, to the experience of what's going on internally. And there's enormous joy in that. There is nothing. Once we get over the fear of what that information is going to say about me, once we get over that, we start, once we pull the roots up from that tendency to want to obscure ourselves from knowledge and we get into the movement of how that feeds the heart, it's joyful. There's nothing more joyful than that. And most of you, probably if you have been doing this for any length of time, have had moments of that joy of the internal, of, oh, wow. I can't believe that's happening. Look at that. And with that comes enormous patience with yourself. Enormous patience. So the world begins to reflect back. Reflect back what image we have portrayed it to be. We begin to see how the five aggregates 
through self-knowledge, we begin to see the world being reflected back again and again, back to us. Okay, oh, well, look what I've made of the world in that situation. And that every response we have to the world is our experience of it, not an indication of it. Not a representation of the world, but a representation of our image of the world, which is very, very different. And therefore, the responsibility lies with us to hold it, not to change the external. At least not until we have that understanding. And then the right action will come, not from our reaction of wanting to change it, but from the source itself. Which is not a passive source, but a very engaged source. And what's the hallmark of self-knowledge? You'd think it would be sophisticated. Sophisticate? No. Innocence, simplicity, ease. Why innocence? Because there's no solidification of me around anything. Why simplicity? Because everything else, all the distractive ways we've created our lives, we've created for our lives, fall away in relationship to this simple journey of the heart. It doesn't mean you don't go to the movies, but it's, those are, when you go, you're with yourself. That above all else. So to remember that Buddhism rests upon this. That all the talks rests upon this. That this is not something that was given in the first six weeks of the beginning series and now you're free of any self-knowledge or mindfulness. But what this class is, is an extension of that. Off the pillow, into our life, so that our journey becomes complete and total as total as our life is as we live it. And the working relationship, the ongoing understanding, and being able to hold the world so that it's always feeding that sense of self-knowledge. That's the art of living. That's the art of Buddhism. And that's what this organization is about. May we all learn deeply together. Can we sit for a minute or two? So if there are any questions or comments, I'd be happy to spend some time with those. Yes. question is when she sits she has visions coming into the mind and 
um, <clears throat> she's not thinking about anything that just come in and she wonders if that's coming externally from others or we're coming from within. You know, it doesn't make any difference. In fact, you see, where we lose ourselves is in, uh, is in um, investing ourselves in the content of either visions or thinking. Because it's the content and the visions that are in the abstract, throw you into the abstraction of yourself. We're not trying to uncover or, or mull over or philosophize. We want the direct representation of what the self is on display, moment after moment. So it's to know that a vision is occurring rather than to try to depict and understand the vision. It's to know that thoughts are arising rather than to try to follow the thought to its logical or illogical conclusion. Just to know that, that's where self-knowledge is. It's in the processing of how the mind is displaying itself, not in the content of what it displays. Yes. Right. 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 You will. Right. Good. Good. Good remedy. Sure, yes, I certainly can. Her question in regards, um, is regarding uh, sitting down with a lot of anxiety and fear and the fear just uh, taking over in terms of its emotional impact and her at first trying to ask, you know, what is this fear about but really not being settled enough to, um, to stabilize that fear and uh, finally opening her eyes and, uh, and just uh, bringing a sense of sanity from the insanity inwardly. Um, so many times we catch reactivity long after um, we have been mauling over them uh, and the, the whole scenario of the content is well into its playing out stage he said this to me and I'm not going to he'll never and I won't and on and on it goes right so you're in the middle of a story a story book and you can't it's hard to pull up after page 37 and not finish the story out. The story keeps wanting to play itself again and again. Right? So, um, the most important thing is to release yourself from the story and go to the experience of the fear. Let the fear, the fear itself is experientiable. The story will just lead you astray. The story is untrue. The experience of fear is the truth. Go to what is true. The experience, the experience, not fear, what it's saying, that's not the experience. The physical sensation and the emotional play 
the emotional play of the fear. And if you could hold that, that, just base yourself with that, that will hold down the story. Because what the story is, is a reaction to the uncomfortable feeling of fear. If the feeling of fear is being held and allowed, then it's not so uncomfortable that it needs to spend the story. You see? So you can hold down the storytelling by being able to hold and open to the emotional base on which the story is reacting to. Do you see? Now, if that's too hard, and fear is a very, very difficult one to do, I think opening your eyes is a very... Um, and just open... Give yourself a sense of space outside of the confines of fear. One way of doing that is to just listen. Go to listening. Listening provides that sense of expansion, of that sense of, of breadth of experience. And then bring the fear into the wide uh, field of that listening. And that can take the, um, alleviate some of the tension associated with the fear itself. And if the fear is just too much, period, a couple of things. You can just stand up. You can break the meditation completely. Or you can just go to your breath and intentionally you are not moving towards the fear. You're just finding another thing to pay attention to. The fear is too much. You're just going to pay attention to something else. But you're doing that consciously. You're not being driven into a secondary object because you're unaware that you're, un- that you're not able to stay on the fear. You're aware that you can't stay on the fear and therefore you choose to go to the secondary object. Okay? So, yes? You know, it, uh, the question is about uh, the frustration this person is feeling when they're trying to sit and go out in the world or not even have time to sit and go out in the world and interact and try to hold the steadiness of the journey of the heart, of self-understanding. Um, and I think uh, all of us feel that, David, not just you. And I think that um, one of the things we constantly need to do inwardly with ourselves is remind us what's important is to have that sense of, of priorities and to have reminders of those of that priority so that we we draw back uh, into ourselves so that we can we have uh, markers that we can see uh, uh, from time to time that uh, what's really important the most important thing in establishing uh, what's important is having the view holding the sense uh, that the world is being, um, that the emotions, the things I'm feeling are not coming from the world. That everything I'm feeling about the world is in me. Let me tune into that. It is not about that. It's not about the patient I'm seeing. It's not about the rush. That is internal pressure. It's never external drive. It's never being forced on me. It's all a mechanism of projection. And when we begin to see that, then, we, then when we get troubled, we know exactly where to go. 
It's knowing where to go that interrupts the sense of being lost. When you're lost, you don't know where to go. It's the, too many patients. It's too many, you know, it's the, you know, the scheduling. And it's the, so, in, it's really in learning where the problem is. And to constantly rehearsing that, because we have spent a lifetime rehearsing that the problem external. And so when we do that, immediately when we get in a bind, we externalize. And so we have to, I mean, it requires a lot of hearing this again and again and again, doesn't it? And having reminders and looking at the view of life. What's, what's my purpose and point of being alive? It's to connect with myself, with others. Okay, I'm never going to be able to connect unless I know what's going on in me. So you can work it that way. You can work it through the, the management of the heart. But it's having that, that view and refreshing that view. In the morning before you get out of bed, lying in bed and say, okay, may, may my mind, may I uh, understand uh, the activities of the day in terms of my own inward responses or some way that allows you to get out of bed with the intention of establishing that view from step one. Because as soon as you go do your toothbrush, it can be gone. And yes, it's frustrating. So, do I know I'm feeling frustrated? Do I know that or is it driving me towards quitting this? This is ridiculous. I'm not doing this anymore. Which is the logical conclusion of frustration. Or is it, okay, let me feel this frustration. What's that about? You see, the view comes or the self-knowledge comes from the view of how we hold this thing. Oh, I can feel this. What, do I want to be driven by frustration my whole life? Let me just feel this thing. Yes. When, when you don't get lost for considerable length of time in your thoughts, when you can stay with the experience of your mind and body rather than thoughts about that experience. Okay? And in Buddhism, that's called samadhi or steadiness of mind. The mind is steady enough not to just be in the waterfall of my thinking. So spending early on, spending a lot of time stabilizing your attention is very important. But, don't, but know what you're doing. Because soon, at some point, the seductive qualities of the breath will take over. And no longer is it to stabilize your attention with the breath, but it's because it's so damn pleasurable and such refined, a calm and quiet Perhaps or maybe you've had moments of that. And you think, why why do I want to go out to the pain? I'm going to stay here. (laughs) This is where it is. This is what I really wanted. This is the tunnel I wanted to dig for myself. 
Just know you're feeling that. Because you'll see that you'll, the access to that level of calm is, um, is not predictable. Sometimes when you sit, you'll have it, and sometimes you won't, no matter how much you do it. And that you won't be able to maintain it after you've let go of your breath. And so what good is it? If it's just a, you know, if it's just a little cave that I've established for myself. Then you also begin to see, if you go the other way, that the ongoing experience of self-knowledge, self-learning, holds a joy that far surpasses the um, subtle responses to the uh, uh, subtle uh, nuances of the breath. And you develop a stability of heart and a sense of inward spaciousness that the breath can never give you. And then then there's no turning back. But for a long time, there's like a fork in the road. I just think I'll stay with my breath. You're not really hurting yourself to do that as long as you know why you're doing it. Because you like it. Because it's pleasurable. In fact, it's an extension of the pleasure-seeking that most of our lives is full of. That we spend most of our lives doing. We just found now, you know, something that wine never gave me. Hmm? Yes. Oh, yes. Um, and it seems that when you do this right and you can sort of look at your own fear about their existence and all this stuff that's going on in the world, uh, you start to feel content with yourself about being able to, you start to become disconnected from the rest of the world, which is really. Not the point. Yeah, I see that, but I don't agree. I mean, um, the question is about fear. Yes, I see. Right. Tongue and cheek. Right. Sure. Yes. The fear. Yes. There's a. Uh, the question is about the fear response and the. the and, and It's difficult for whom? Well, it's difficult because everyone else is responding to fear and it's like, it's not, you know. Right, but you're not going to, don't hold the masses for your, for your model, you know, that, because this is going to take you very, very different places than what most people do. And one of the ways it's going to take you is a different response to situations that you feel much more connected with the pain associated with that through that connection of the heart rather than the pain or the, the connection because you're feeling fear and I'm feeling fear and we're connected because we're brothers in fear. 
you know, so we have to be stronger than what the media and politics is telling us. And I don't see any, um, I just, I don't, I don't agree that there is a, there's a, there was a point to fear when we were out on the Serengeti Plains being chased by lions because it got us up in the tree quicker. It's a, the adrenaline rush made us move. But what we've done is internalized it now. And I don't see any, I don't see that as an appropriate response at all. In fact, when we're not caught into that fear response, what happens is that you feel more connected with the situation because you're not reacting away from it. And from that more connection, you see it more clearly. Because you're more connected to it, you see it clearly. When you see it clearly, you know what response is needed because the intelligence comes in from that clarity. Fear gives you one intelligent quote, quota, quotient. Flee. That's its response. Flee or fight. Usually flee. Well, there, there are lots of, lots of possibilities beyond that. One is to understand, which fear will never allow. Through connection, through clarity, maybe I can actually make, develop a relation here and understand my feared object. So it t- this takes more sanity than what other people are doing. It takes more resolve. It takes more willingness um, not to um, simply move um, with the rising of the terrorist scale from orange alert to red, you know, and suddenly find ourselves um, buying duct tape. No, I'm not, I, don't, I don't want to live in a world that buys duct tape. So, if we get killed, fine. I'd rather get killed and not buy duct tape. <laughs> Wouldn't you? Who wants to live in that? Yes. Um, Rodney, I find myself getting, um, having confusion between, or or, or actually guilt about the feelings of grief and the feelings of joy. Sometimes they seem the same. Grief and joy? A confusion about grief and joy. Uh, I, I, wh- why, where is the confusion? It's more guilt. I mean, in feeling grief, if, if I really... You're more deserving of feeling grief than joy? No, I, I feel like they're, they're, they have the same... They're almost both blissful in some way. They're almost... Um, where does the, gr- uh, the guilt come in? Well, oh, I, okay, okay. So, so that's, just throw that away. You're not supposed to be feeling anything else. All right. Uh, guilt or grief is a very um, um, subtle and sensitive, sensitive emotion. It's a very um, precious emotion. So very, there's a lot of love in grief. Uh, and it's the pain of being cut off from that love. And if you 
if you um, touch that grief with the sensitivity uh, that it's calling for, uh, then there is a, there's, there's, a, there's quite a um, there's, there, uh, joy. I wouldn't, say, I wouldn't call it joyful, but there is an expansive and tender, tender place that is beautiful. Right? If you get lost in the storyline, then you get lost in bereavement and the issues, which is okay too because that's part of the working out of it. But to stay uh, with that tenderness of grief and let it open your heart in it, in its sense, in, through that sensitivity uh, is very refined. And, um, and, and I can see the word joy coming in there. So d- don't block the natural movement of your heart to anything by thinking that you should be feeling something else. Okay? That's the essence of the difficulty. Good. So we have to stop now. I thank you very much for this evening. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.